Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Scott Tannen, CEO and founder of Bolin Branch, a luxury and sustainable home brand. Scott disrupted the textile industry for the better in 2014 by launching Bolin Branch as the world's first fair trade certified betting company with his co-founder and life partner and wife, Missy Tannen. Scott's commitment in mindful manufacturing was the force behind the choice to use 100% organic cotton, which has enhanced the lives of many cotton farmers in India, which we will talk about. This purpose-driven approach, coupled with pristine products, has given Bolin Branch the title the world's most ethical cotton sheets brand, something many consumers, including myself and multiple presidents, like to say that in the same sentence, have been drawn to. Prior to founding Bolin Branch, Scott spent several years building online marketing campaigns for beloved consumer brands like Altoids, Planters, and my favorite, Oreos. I like the thin Oreos. With Scott's innovative and purpose-driven nature, he has led Bolin Branch to transform sleep and create an incredible impact on deserving communities. And they just closed in on raising a $100 million round just a month ago. Scott Tannen, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. I am incredibly excited as a fanboy of Bolin Branch. We sleep on your sheets. We also have your towels. I should mention that. My family sleeps on your sheets. I'm really happy to have you on. And if you could start by talking a little bit about the inspiration behind founding the company, you, kind of like me, have a marketing background. You're a digital marketing guy, um, had a very good career working for some incredible brands, and then you decided to take the leap. What was it that made you decide to take that leap? And just, by the way, what, five years ago, incredible success. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of times you never look at it as a leap. It's a whole bunch of baby steps. And all of a sudden you turn around and you look backwards and, and you say, okay, I took a leap. But when you're in the process, there's not a pivotal moment that you say, okay, I'm going to just send every bit of my savings. I'm going to wire it to somebody I've never met in India and hope that a boat shows up in eight months with some sheets on it. And then all will be good, right? It's, it's never that drastic. But for me, you know, I was in the marketing space, but, but really more on the digital side. And, and anybody that sort of grew up in that space in the early 2000s, you know, I was proud to both be the head of and the most junior person in the digital marketing department. I was the entire thing. And so what I realized over time is that I'd been operating sort of independently within a larger organization and all those safety nets since the very start of my career, but doing what entrepreneurs do, which is trying to blaze a path forward versus trying to, to find your way through the path, if, if that makes any sense. So, and that's the, that's the essence of a, of a startup. I didn't know anything about bed linens. I didn't know anything about making textiles. But I saw that there was an opportunity to do it better than the options that were available to, to me as a consumer. And that was my starting point to say, why do the options have to stink? Why are really there no brands? And, and as a consumer, why am I not sure what to buy? Um, using your analogy with Oreos, you know, if you want a cookie, there's no shortage of proven good options out there. You know, you, you know what you're going to get when you bite into an Oreo. You know what you're going to get when you buy into a Chips Ahoy or, or anything else for that matter. But when it comes to bedding and it comes to our sheets, we all sleep on the product. We don't really know what makes something 
feel awesome versus the ones that you're like, oh my gosh, this is sandpaper. And so, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of digging to realize that there's always been a lot more salesmanship and and sort of marketing than real product um, in the mix. And I think as most real marketers know, a great product makes you a better marketer. How did you come up with betting though? I mean, you saw the opportunity, but was there like a, a spark? And I ask because we had the founder and CEO of Care of, you know, the vitamin pack company on a few months ago. And his thing was, you know, he got confused. He knew, like you, he knew nothing about vitamins, but he did get frustrated when he was walking through the aisles of CVS or Walgreens because there's too many choices. It was a lot of marketing, but not a lot of substance. And he felt like there was a better way forward. Did you have that moment as well? Or is it a collection of moments that led you specifically to this product? Well, when it comes to sheets and towels and bedding and whatnot. hundred percent, I had a moment and it occurred when we were, Missy and I were, were redoing our master bedroom. So we were moving from a queen bed to the king bed, which is sort of like as we've even seen through our own research, this is like a major pivotal adulting moment for people. <laughs> so, you know, they may start in a queen bed, but they got their sheets when they registered for their wedding or their, their mom hooked them up, which is the case. in in our case, like our first Christmas together, Missy's mom bought us our sheets. That was about the last we thought of it. And all of a sudden we're getting a king bed and Missy came back from the mall and was like, you know, there's so many choices and I don't know. I mean, she was just distraught and just beside herself and I actually, it, it only stuck out to me because I, I was like, this is the one of the most ridiculous things in the world that your day is confounded by the fact that you can't pick out bed sheets. Like, how hard could this be? <laughs> it's a first world so problem, being, right? Being, right? Yeah, like, exactly. And of course, being um, who I am and pretty much believing I, I know everything, whether I do or don't, I was like, well, let me figure this out. And the first thing I did, I remember going to Google and I was like, well, I know thread count's important. So let me look up what makes what's the best thread count? Like, what should I ideally look for? And when I did that, I found, I I just ran into this, well, you know, thread count doesn't have anything to do with quality. It really only has to do with how many threads are per square inch. And really simply, you can pack a lot of really crummy threads in a square inch of fabric and has a high thread count and feels like crap. So this is like eight, nine o'clock at night. And I just fell into the rabbit hole. I'm like, man, how hard can it be to buy sheets? And my goal was to just truly prove to my wife that once again, I figured it out with the power of the internet. And I bought off a great set of sheets. By the next morning, I had stayed up to like four in the morning. And I said to Missy, I was like, I'm going to start sheets company. It is way too hard to buy a good set of sheets. And everything out there is garbage because you start finding things like, you know, Egyptian cotton, every, all the little bits of information that I actually knew or thought I knew proved out to be kind of just made up. Egyptian cotton like doesn't even come from Egypt. Most of it's grown in other places. It's just sort of like a a brand name or something like that. And so I just left feeling like we can't be the only ones that have this problem. Now, it wasn't like that was a moment where, as you said, I took the leap and decided to shut everything in my life down and, and go after it. But I did start really trying to research and understand how the textile industry worked. And the deeper I dug, the more I found that the status quo was just terrible. Um, It was terrible for consumers. It was terrible for the makers. Really, nobody was winning outside of four or five really big garment and textile importers. And so I looked at that as this is a highly fragmented market where no brand is winning and and we can win. So my highly uninformed not researched theory was that it kind of like in the furniture industry where you have three or four 
large uh, kind of white label makers making everything for a bunch of retailers. Is that how it used to work or is that how it mostly works in the betting industry? It still works that way. Okay. Yeah, it still works that way. And so you have everybody from the big box retailers that, that might carry, you know, like an 80s supermodel as their license, right? Private labeled from the same mill that their house brand is private labeled from that everything else is. And what's crazy is there's other startups that have actually done reasonably well that launched around the same time of us that they're literally private labeling the same junk that you're buying at a lot of these stores. And they're, they're positioning them as luxury products. And the reality is it's like, now I've been in your factory. I know what you're selling and you're selling something that Walmart is selling for $49 for a sheet set for 169 and saying, you know, it's designed in this cool city by these hipsters and, and whatever. So all aspects and all phases of the market, the status quo just had not been challenged and still is rarely challenged. It's only just starting to start starting to happen now because I think people have realized like, whoa, Bowl and Branch has done things a little bit differently and has been able to start actually babbling up a fair amount of market share because customers do want better. How big is the market? In the US, it's you know about a, a three to five billion dollar a year market, and that's just bed linens as you start broadening the market, it gets much larger as you start thinking about towels and, you know, and then obviously, you, you know, you tack in $12 billion for mattresses and furniture and window treatments and kitchen textiles and, and, and home textile starts to become, you know, really a, a pretty big market. And are people just based on your own research so far, are people buying, it's obviously an incredible product and or a suite of products. Are they buying it for that? And, or because of the sustainability narrative, uh, which I think comes through in some ways, but I feel like your messaging on the quality and challenging the status quo and being able to say you can get better for less is also very prominent. Can you talk a little bit about those different layers of narratives when it comes to speaking to the consumer? Yeah, sure. Um, people don't want to sleep on a sustainable bed. They want to sleep on a comfortable one. And so I think like all businesses and all categories, if you don't have an exceptional product, this is before any of the marketing starts. You're just the noise before you end up going out of business at some point. And I think there are a lot of brands in a lot of categories that have had these incredibly explosive starts, but all of a sudden, you know, the trendiness was not backed up with a strong product and, and they start fizzling and, and disappear as soon as they arrive on the scene. In our case, we understand that people will buy our product for the first time because of how it feels, because of, of how great the sheets feel when they're in your bed. What they choose to talk about with their friends when, when they, they, you know, we kind of say they, they buy us for our quality, but they love us for everything we stand behind. And so we think about, I mean, we have obviously a very socially conscious and social driven company. The reason 100% of people that work at this company work at this company is because of what we believe and how we've really built a very differentiated textile supply chain that for the first time, I think in, in certainly modern human history is across the board, truly lifting people up. And there, there are other brands like Patagonia and whatnot that I think have done something very similar, but just like Patagonia, if you're going to freeze your butt off on the side of a mountain, you're probably not buying a Patagonia coat, despite the fact that it's a brand that, you know, it's hard not to have an affinity for how much they care about the products they make and the people that make them. So, what we find is our true believers come back and repeat purchase again and again and again. I mean, nearly half the people that buy a Bull & Branch product 
buy something again within a year. That's nearly unheard of in the home textiles business. It is. And it, it was sustainability always part. It sounds like it was part of the business plan from day one. Well, it wasn't part of the business plan as much as it was a part of Missy and my values, right? Like if, if we're going to start this from scratch, how do we not make every choice possible. You know, we knew we were not going to accept giant mill number six in Bangladesh or China or India and pick model 12 off the shelf and private label it. Like to me, it's like, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, why bother? That's not really, you know, that's, that's all about how do I make money? Right. Cause that, that is the easy way out, right? That's the easy way to do it. Totally. And, and like anything, like there's a lot of ways to make money as an entrepreneur, but you know, I don't think true entrepreneurs really think about how much money am I going to make? How much money is the company going to make? And how quickly they, they really think about how am I going to make an impact on, on groups of people? And so from the very beginning, as we started learning about, you know, how opaque the supply chains were in a lot of these, you know, traditional importers and exporters and factories, I found myself reverse engineering their supply chains. I was learning more about a lot of these, you know, there's a, a company that makes in Italy and they make for a lot of huge companies as well as they make for some startups and you know, everything's made in Italy. And all of a sudden I reverse engineered their supply chain, found out that the, that basically the labeling and the last bit of finishing is done in Italy. Every single other part of their product is made in China, as well as their Egyptian cotton is grown on the premises of this factory in China, where people are paid not in money, but in credits that they can use at the commissary at this factory while they live there. And they have the ability to leave, right? So they say they're not slaves, but their cost to leave is the equivalent of about 10 years pay. So right. nobody really can. Which is indentured so, servitude, you know, basically. Yeah, it's exactly. It's yeah. absolutely indentured servitude. It's slavery. It's modern slavery. Right. Right. And so I heard someone speak once. It's like, you know, just because you have a cell phone and access to information doesn't mean you're not a slave. And so you start seeing this and you see it again and again and again. And we felt that, all right, we've got to start over from scratch. And I do remember, I mean, there were two pivotal, one learning and one event. The first learning was, you know, when you learn that, a conventional cotton farmer in India, um, that their life expectancy is 35. And that's not just because they're walking in the fields and hand applying really, really dangerous chemicals and pesticides. They don't have irrigation. They don't have safety equipment. So for their entire lives, these chemicals and pesticides, of which think about it this way, cotton's like three to 5% of the world's crops and 25 to 30% of the world's chemicals and pesticides, right? So really, really heavy impact on the environment. Right. And so and leach the soil so badly, you can't rotate crops and you can't plant food. But worst of all, all the stuff leaches into the soil, which finds its way into the groundwater, which goes to the water supply. So people in these villages that don't have education and don't understand the dangers, they're consuming this stuff from the time they're children. Right. So you have really, really bad things happening in these villages that as far as most of us as American consumers, we don't even know exist. But whether you're, you know, you're shopping at the biggest of big box retailer or somebody smaller like us, direct to consumer, these are the people who are responsible for making those products, you know, and, and so we just felt that that's a status quo we cannot get involved in. So we started with a cotton source and we started by understanding organic cotton and understanding parts of India that had laws against genetically modified seeds and GM farming, but the problem was they didn't have a lot of demand, right? So here you have these villages that are now working together to, to try to grow a cash crop in a much more sustainable way, but there wasn't demand. And we were very small in the beginning, but I said, look, I'm going to put my dollars here. And because the product's more expensive in terms of organic cotton, both because the supply is lower and because what we pay 
is equivalent to the living wage. We ignore the commodity price unless the commodity price was ever higher, which it probably wouldn't be. And we ensure that everybody from whom we buy cotton is, is living above the living wage, which means above the poverty line. That's actually very rare. Most cotton products that you have are made by somebody living below the poverty line. And what we've also done is work with fair trade to apply premiums so that we can help them with civic projects, everything from trade skills to uh, medical and health services, clean water, education, which obviously is, is most important, right? All of the folks that are are farming, they have families. They're just like me. What do I want? Is I want a better life for my kids and that's what they want. So we try to make sure that every step in the chain and it starts there and goes right through all of our factories, lifts people up. But what we, we have to do is we found that, that there's so much bloat and fat and middlemen actually that sit on the backside of supply chain. So normally people say cut out the middlemen. They're buying something from a product and selling it direct to consumer, right? So they're cutting out the wholesale markup, which you know every direct to consumer brand does. But really, there's way more middlemen that sit between the factory and the original source of the raw material. So we've had to cut all of them out and build our own supply chains. And lo and behold, we ended up with a much higher quality product than is available. Everybody in the supply chain, from the farmers to the factory workers, makes more money and the customer is paying about half. Right. I always say that the middleman or men are really kind of mobsters in that scenario, right? Unless you do it yeah, yourself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. How did you find these villages and these farmers? How do, that sounds like Google. an impossible... T- really? Wow. No joke. <laughs> I started reading articles. I remember an article in The Guardian that I read that was written in like 2012 about a small cooperative in India called Chetna. And the article talked about how they were harvesting seeds and trying to insulate their communities from contamination from genetically modified farming because the area of India that they were in, um, it was it was in the process or, or had been outlawed. And I just became completely fascinated by it. And I literally found their website, which wasn't the most sophisticated. And I emailed them and I said, all right, my name's Scott. I don't know anything about textiles, but I think I want to buy your cotton. And then I'm going to figure out what to do with it. And they wrote back and we had a bunch of Skype calls and and they ended up connecting me. They're like, well, I don't know anybody that can make bedding, but this guy can make t-shirts. I was like, all right, that's a start. Right, <laughs> so, right. You know, I'm calling these different factories and it literally was like, it started with Google and, and just reading and consuming as much information as I could. And then finding ways to reach out and spending some time on an airplane and doing those sorts of things to ultimately find, you know, various segments of a garment supply chain that we could work with and, and actually, you know, help turn into a high performing home goods supply chain. And that's what we've done. Is there any way possible that you could go back to those farmers and those families in Bangladesh, where I think you said the average life expectancy is 35 and change that or change their life? Or is that kind of just gone at this point? No. In, in fact, it's in India. And there's nothing I'm more proud of than to say, that we're having a major impact. We're now the largest consumer of fair trade organic cotton in the world. And so this initial cooperative where our first order was maybe going to consume, you know, a couple percentage points of their overall supply, you know, and they had some other brands buying small amounts. We're buying all of their cotton um, and have brought in other brands. And now, so, so this cooperative is selling now nearly 100% of, of their cotton into the premium marketplace, as well as about four others. So anywhere from 10 to 50,000 Farmers, um, you know, certainly tens of thousands of farmers in the developing world are living above the poverty line 
now because brands like Bull and Branch are being more considerate about their sourcing. I don't think there's another home brand of scale um, that's engaging. But but again, you have brands like Patagonia, brands like Prana that are doing a lot and really being considerate about how and from where they source. So you're starting to see this shift towards more sustainable and ethical procurement of raw materials because you can't hide from the fact you have brands like us and, and others that are telling the stories. You know, wh- what are you going to do if you're a mass market brand and you're saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to ignore that. I mean, y- they can only ignore it to a certain point. You literally can't sleep at night, no pun intended. How can you possibly sleep at night knowing that? But now you're, you're raising that, you're shining a light on that. Yeah. And look, I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive. If, if you're a big public company, right. And all of a sudden you've got to tell the w- wall street, like, look, Okay, our, our cost structure has to change. This has to change because we've been doing some bad things for a long period of time. That is really hard. You look at companies that have had to do it over the years, and it's not fun. It's an ugly, ugly, ugly thing. And I have never run a public company, so I, I can't exactly relate. But I can only imagine that you know it's not quite so simple because you know you're gonna you're gonna not only be impacting you know by making one change if it has a financial impact on your business. There's how many tens of thousands of people have bet their retirements on your business? And now you're going to be, you know, wagering those. So there's always two sides to a, a scenario. The piece that's interesting to me is when you see young companies and startups in apparel and home goods and things like that. And Bull and Branch is an example. Certainly, let's use home as an example. Bull and Branch has been out there now. I don't think you're starting a home goods business and saying you don't know what, what our business is and, and haven't done some research. But then to make a, a conscious decision not to source sustainably that is unfathomable to me. It's I absolutely can't wrap my head around that. Like we published our impact report. We have given an instruction book for anybody that wants to source where you can go, where the factories are, where the farms are. We've done all the legwork. We've nailed down the supply chain. Anybody else can end up tapping into that in a second. And very few are doing it. Yeah, Kind of shocking. Well, you're right. And a common theme with a lot of the companies and brands I've been talking to is transparency. And uh, publishing those reports and having it audited by third parties. And I applaud you for that. And on a much lighter note, yeah, the name Bolin Branch, where did it come from? Yeah. So if you could picture like a cotton plant, right? Um, you think that white puffy cotton ball mm-hmm. and it grows in a branch. That, that's it. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> that's it. It's genius. <laughs> well, you know, look, symbolically, I think we knew that everything we we're going to do and every success we'd have in this business was going to be based on what we could end up doing with, with cotton. And so, you know, cotton's at the core of, of our business and, and that's why it's in our name. But to be honest, it, it just, you know, before we launched, we, Missy was sitting with like this old early 1900s anatomy of a cotton plant and the name just sort of sprung to her. And I was like, oh my God, I love it. And, you know, we did a quick poll of our friends with that and a few other contenders and it was like near unanimous. So we became Bull and Branch. So you don't need to spend $2 million with like, you know, Interbrand or one of those companies to come up with a name. You can, because they're, I hear their Christmas gifts are awesome. But <laughs> That's about um, it. Yeah, right. But it might not. Yeah. Our first logo we did on 99designs for $88. Sweet. So that's like uh, the Fiverr. That's like Fiverr, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's maybe like a little bit higher end than Fiverr. Not by much. So... Yeah, I mean, it is kind of funny. And especially because I've come from the agent, in between being in the brand space and doing this, I was in the agency world. So I was basically uh, maybe coming to terms with the fact that I might have overcharged people from time to time in my career. 
Well, I think the agency world is great training for anything, because if you think about the skills that you put to work to just understand the process, right? So us agency guys, we have to learn a lot about a lot of things on very short notice and become expert pretty quickly. So we become very efficient with with our research methodology, right? And I'm sure that helped you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, ultimately, every retail business is simply a customer service company. And every agency is simply a customer service company. And, and so there are so many common threads around thinking about everything before your client or your customer has to worry about it that I think are, are aligned. Well, do you remember some of the names that you came up with that might have been terrible that did not make it before Bull and Branch? Yeah, we had Bolt, which was like, you know, like a bolt of material is like a big wheel. We had Change Bed and Bath where we were going to change everything. <laughs> Those are some real winners there. We had a whole bunch of names that were based on our kids' initials and you know the typical stuff. At one point, we had HolySheets.com, and then we realized that using sheets in place of shit was kind of juvenile. Right. So you would have definitely sheeted the bed on that one. The dad joke. Sorry. <laughs> I'm That's sure, a dad joke. A right? dad joke. Yeah, I'm, I'm expert at that. I have a whole book of them that my daughter gave me. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the moment that you decided to actually do this, quit your day job, your agency job. And I say this because when I started my company, which is very different, a B2B company, I think in some ways is safer in some ways. I remember I took a second mortgage out of my house, I quit my job. I, you know, cashed in like old bar mitzvah bonds, you know, I mean, I put, yeah. I put everything in like everything. And, uh, people are like, Oh my God, you're crazy. You know, what are you going to do if it doesn't work out? I was like, well, you know, a lot of us are just in debt forever anyhow, and I'm mostly employable, so I'll just get a job. But I would have a great regret for not trying. What was that moment like, and what did you do to help capitalize the company? Yeah, so I will say that it is unfairly, to an unfair extent, it is easier for someone who's in their, say, 30s to start a company than it is for someone in their 20s financially, but much harder because you have a lot more at risk. Yeah, right? your, your, your financial kids. obligations are huge. I mean, I had a four-year-old yeah, and yeah. a one-year-old and a mortgage, and then I had another mortgage, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yep, I had a mortgage. Uh, I, I had three kids. I wasn't working at the time. I had sold my last company, which was fortunate because I was able to have some proceeds, and I gave myself two years of no income to figure something out. And so I spent most of that two years of reserve in about the first six weeks on our first POs. And then over the course of the next year, um, had accumulated five additional mortgages secondary on my house with different banks. I'm not even sure if I was allowed, but I had SBA loans and things like that, all personally guaranteed. Um, Ended up taking about $5 million in debt on myself through the SBA. The awesome thing about the SBA is if you own a house, you can re-collateralize it, re-collateralize it, re-collateralize it. The downside is, is that if you take a dollar, you can get $5 million. So, you know, if this didn't work, I was screwed. Right. Um, and Missy kept asking me, she's like, we're not going to lose the house. Are we? I was like, no, we're fine. It's just a house. Um, it's just a house. Know, I, I would have been selling sheets out of the back of my truck to figure it out. You're, but, like, you're like, Missy, we have each other. That's all that matters. Yeah. So <laughs> um, for me, it was, uh, it was at that time we placed that first PO where I said, okay, this is it, right? We, we are going to do this. And, and again, having given that this wasn't my first company, I was comfortable with betting on myself and I, I felt that the opportunity was really great. Perhaps foolishly, I told myself that, that, well, worst comes to worst, somebody can buy these sheets off me. 
but it was around that first PO. And once, once we did that, I mean, the hardest thing is you place a purchase order. Now you've got like eight months to wait for product to show up in the warehouse. So during that eight months, I had to name the company. I didn't have a name before I placed the first PO. I built our website myself. I built all of our advertising and marketing materials. And I hit up tons of friends in the advertising business for free work as well during that period of time, waiting for the product to come in. And yeah, and again, in hindsight, craziest thing I've ever done. Well, and you know, you talk about selling your other company. And for those of us who aren't who are listening to the podcast or are not familiar with the marketing services industry, very few people make FU money where they sell their company and then they're done. People like you and me, you know, you might have a year or two, but you still, especially where we live in this coast, we still have to figure something out, right? You could have just kind of put it to the side and gotten another job and like a sane person decided, I'm just going to kind of go on with my life. But no, because entrepreneurs, you have to have a little bit of insanity. It's positive. I call it positive insanity to be able to take that leap. And I have just a lot of respect for you and and everybody who's uh, all the others who have done things like this. And I'm glad you're able to share that story. It's important. Well, look, and, and, and the most important thing is that to me, building is fun, right? And yes, there's tons of stress that comes with it. There's tons of days where things turn inside out or upside down six ways from Sunday. But my worst day here is still pretty darn good. And it's been like that since the very day we started. And I love what I'm doing. I'm incredibly passionate about the people for whom we're doing it and the impact that we're able to make every time we sell set of sheets, a whole chain of good things starts. But I do think that I see a lot of people that, that get into the entrepreneurial space and maybe they're, they're motivated by the financial aspect. And, and the problem is, is that on a random garden variety Thursday in April, you realize how far you are from ever being in a spot where you're going to make money. And you've got to grind it through. And if you don't find joy in grinding it out, it's the kind of thing that can have a massive impact on your mental health, on your family, on your relationships, on everything in your life. And and so, you know, not everybody is wired for that. I'm the kind of person that's wired if, you know, if I think back to my days at Kraft and Wrigley, you know, sitting in in more of a desk job was it put constraints on me that actually sucked the job. There was no joy in that for right. me. Other people are able to find joy when they have stability, right? To me, I, I like that that opportunity to create. And everybody's wired a little bit differently. So when you understand not just what endpoint you want, but what day-to-day you want and how that feels, that's that makes all the difference. So one of the things that struck me um, about your advertising, and I'm curious how you did this, is that the line about, you know, five, I think it's like five presidents have slept on our sheets, right? Three U.S. presidents, yep. There you go, U.S. presidents, I should say, right. How did that come about? How'd you do that? Honest to goodness, they were customers. And one of them was like among our very first. He became aware of the business before we launched. And just out of respect, I, I, you know, they don't do endorsements. I wouldn't want to use their names. But I can tell you that more than three U.S. presidents use our products. We just continue to say three. And we, uh, we don't give away the product. They're customers, you know, one of which just, literally called Missy a few days ago, um, the former first lady, because she loves our towels and wanted to know if we had a recommendation on where she could get the monogram for their summer home. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where when you're creating a radio ad, you're looking for social proof. And I was riffing on the mic and I was like, you know, these sheets are so great. Even three U.S. presidents love them. And 
they ended up running it in the ad and it became this hook that we became known for, which is, is pretty cool. It really is so memorable because, you know, uh, so many other brands lean into like the obvious in terms of athletes and celebrities and whatnot. Saying three U.S. presidents is different and it really stays with you. And I, I'm sure uh, I don't have any like data and maybe you do or don't that that is absolutely a critical component of the uh, early days of your marketing strategy. And, and it happens to be true. Yeah. I mean, happy accidents happen, right? Exactly. Listen, man, it, I, we can go on for hours. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> off air, you said to me that you weren't interesting. And I think that you're one of the most interesting people I've spoken to. And I have enormous amount of respect for you and your wife, Missy, and for what you've built. And I personally am so excited to see this company continue to grow, for me to continue to use your products and for all my friends and future U.S. presidents and others to use these products. Just tell us what, what's the best way to follow you guys on social and find out what's going on and what's new and what's happening next. Sure. So just follow Bull and Branch on Instagram. Um, you can follow uh, me on Twitter or LinkedIn. But um, yeah, uh, us on Instagram is the, the best way to keep tabs with, with what we're doing. But no, so appreciative of you having us and for all your support, not just you know having me on the show, but, but as a customer over the years. And hopefully, uh, I know your son is a big fan and hopefully maybe he'll, he'll be the sixth U.S. president one day that enjoys Bull and Branch Sheets. You never know. I think he'd love that. He, he was voluntold at school and now I think he's uh, voluntold, if that's a word, because he loves the sheets. So that's awesome. Scott Tannen, CEO and founder of Bull and Branch. Thank you again for being on Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Yeah.